the international community uh, is prepared to walk away. You're listening to the news on RTHK. for the last three to five years. Foreign financial services is known to be very tough. And traders trading all sorts of things. Volatility in the foreign exchange market. Money for nothing. Good morning to you all and a very happy Easter. This is the Thursday, 2nd of April edition of Money for Nothing and the last day before the long Easter holiday. And I'm Richard Harris. Your business headlines for the day. Markets rise in Europe and fall in the US as data indicate faster growth in Europe and slower in the US. China's economy shows small signs of life as manufacturing expands last month by the smallest margin. And China eases home buying rules as purchasers shun the property markets. In other news, against a good run of data, Japan's businessmen remain gloomy in the quarterly Tankan poll of business confidence. And your burger might be about to get more expensive. McDonald's are to increase their hourly wages and, wait for it, off a paid vacation. Steve Easterbrook, the new CEO, said, we've listened to our employees and learned. Well, we may be moving into a five-day weekend in Hong Kong, but we've got a packed show for you today, and all of our guests have spent decades in Asia. First up is our market commentator, Robert Howe of Geomatrix, and he's followed by a man with Platts Australia, the commodities market analysts. Paul Bartholomew will be covering the steel markets with a special focus on China. And we wrap up by unveiling a very special guest, someone who's been a regular in local journalism for decades and who you will probably be reading every day. It's the author of the Lycee column, Howard Wynn of the South China Morning Post. And back with us as our guest host is Mark Conan of Cathay Conning Asset Management. Mark's a well-known figure in Hong Kong, having built asset management businesses here for 20-odd years. Welcome back to the show, Mark. Good morning. Mark, everyone I seem to be talking to seems to be quite bullish after the last quarter. How about you? Yeah, markets are um, sort of adjusting to these easy monetary conditions uh, globally and um, have got quite excited, particularly uh, in China, because of the potential for more stimulus and what we're seeing with the ECB in Europe. That's driven risk assets a lot higher. Mm, Well, China's loosened home buying rules on the 30th of March to lift the weak real estate market. Minimum down payments have been reduced from 60% to 40%, and owners are exempt from extra stamp duty if they sell after two years instead of five. Unsold homes in China jumped by 26% last year, while house prices fell. In China, the official purchasing managers index for March rose to 50.1 from 49.9. Over 50 indicates an expansion of manufacturing. Shen Jinguan, who's the Mizuho Securities Chief Asia Economist, does not have that much confidence in the numbers. The upside is the large companies. If you look at the medium and the small size companies, the, the PMI for those two categories also declined. So to me, you know, I think it's very much like a policy-driven you know, uh, increase in the PMI in the sense that a lot of stimulus package that has been announced boosted the expectations, but uh, not really in the order books. So I think uh, what we are seeing now is actually a lot of uh, new announcement by the government to stimulate the economy. Hmm, perhaps a tad cynical. Though it seems that the government's keenly aware of the weakening economy. Will it reduce interest rates first? or the reserve that banks need to hold, known as the RRR? I think more likely it's the chopper first than interest rate cuts. And uh, all I can see is the fiscal uh, easing and monetary easing is already been uh, 
already been uh, progressing, but uh, probably more to come to actually revive the the economy. So, so I I don't think this PMI number. This month is the reason for celebration because normally in March it's the seasonal, you know, high for 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 the years. So the economy is not on the mend yet, but we've had some pretty liberal words out from Beijing in the last few days, especially from People's Bank of China Governor Zhou. I think that China is very ambitious in making renminbi a reserve currency. Also, that's also the reason behind the new Silk Road strategy and the Asian Infrastructure Development Bank. So the renminbi yuan will play a more important role in future. So I think that's our concerted efforts to make renminbi a more international currency. So in the last few days, we've heard about possible liberalisation of the yuan. Interest rates and property stimulus. Shen takes us through his view on China's overall strategy. China will invest heavily in East Asian countries, Southeast Asian countries, Middle Asian countries. All these kind of ports, roads need to be built with Chinese money and probably with Chinese equipments, and also way to export.、Uh, to me, it's 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 a big、uh, you know stimulus p- policy, not only for China but also for Asia. Mark, that's an interesting issue that China's maybe looking to spend its way out of the problem, but not domestically as other countries are, but through foreign influence with the new Silk Road and the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. Yeah, the One Belt One Road、uh, initiative is、uh, a fairly ambitious project that's going to span multiple years. I think estimates this year are anywhere between fifty to sixty-five billion dollars worth of spend alone.、Um, so potentially, it's it's a major project, and it has. Broader ramifications, not just from an investment point of view, but in terms of cooperation with many nations, spanning from Asia all the way through Europe and、um, through maritime infrastructure through through Africa. But we've also had the situation with the U.S. being concerned that maybe this is going to be undue influence on other parts of the world, and indeed we've heard a lot of talk from Sri Lanka recently, where the Sri Lankans are now rebelling at uh, uh, Chinese investment in their infrastructure. Well, what we've seen historically is、um, an attempt by the U.S. to try and、um, limit the scope of influence globally tied to economic investment. We saw it previously. Uh, during the 80s and part of the 90s, with Japan successfully、um, sort of putting a, a, a ring fence around that type of activity, but of course China has different aspirations and is tying together quite closely its、um, its influence in the world, its aspirations to be more influential, together with its、uh, economic deployment. Well, let's bring in our market guest today, Robert Howe, who's the CEO of Geometrics Investment.、Uh, Bob and I worked together over a quarter of a century ago, so. I know he's got some views on this issue with China's geopolitical stance. Yeah,、um, I mean, we're, we really focus in terms of what the market's going to do because、um, we're trying to make money for our clients. The,、um, the, the key for us was the the,、um, the the you know the through train of、um, the, the stock markets linking. In the beginning of QE, China has been running a tight monetary policy since Tiananmen Square, really, except for briefly in the end of two thousand eight when the world was ending. Um, and you know the, the property measures are one part of it. So、um, the market is in gear. Once the market breaks up and makes a certain technical breakout, it typically doubles. Well, Chinese markets started strongly on the first day of the quarter, rising 1.7 percent to seven-year high in Shanghai to 3,810. The Hang Seng was up 0.7 percent to 25,082, while a Hong Kong-based Hang Seng China Enterprises Index of China-based stocks rose 1.6 percent.、Um, Gentlemen, we've had quite a big rally in China.、Um, it looks as、like、if it's going to go on with this kind of 
drip, drip, drip of, uh, uh, of stimulus. What do you think, Bob? That's been the, that's been the past pattern. Once it breaks up, you know, the Chinese investors are completely momentum players. They're not value at all. I mean, the market was at insanely cheap value, and they weren't interested. But once it starts moving and volume picks up, come Watson, the game's afoot, and everyone gets involved. It's a big casino, isn't it, Mark? Um, well, maybe not a casino, but I certainly agree with that it. it's a momentum market. It's certainly not fundamentals that's driving the market at the moment. We're going to see a number of earnings disappointments through the course of this year as companies come to report. Um, you know, institutions in China are benefiting themselves from investing in the market, and that's encouraging them themselves to invest more in the market. So it is a momentum sort of situation. Um, well, we've got Bob here. Bob, I know you're a specialist on Japan as well. And Japan's quite intriguing at the moment because we had the Tankan report last night that was a bit gloomy. But if you actually look between the numbers, um, the numbers aren't too bad. And, um, uh, you know, just looking at the numbers, we're all worried about inflation in Japan. But now we're looking at 2.3%. Uh, was the last figure in February. Japan's jobless rate is down. Japan's retail sales are up. Is QE in Japan actually working? Um, I th yes, it is. Those numbers tell you that it is working. I worry because whenever, you know, someone gets on an aircraft carrier in monetary policy and says mission accomplished, that means that the punch ball gets taken away. So I, I don't I like to see continued, you know, sort of stagflation. And that means the punch ball is out and stock prices go up. Yes, but stock prices go up. The yen goes down and us foreign investors in the same position. Oh, you can you can hedge. Uh, Mark, what do you think about Japan? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting survey. Um, I'll be interested in Bob's perspective in terms of, you know, international investors continuing to, to participate. There's been a lot of talk about um, you know, international institutions raising their, their weighting in Japan because they've been significantly underweight for a long time despite this very strong rally. Um, are international investors thinking differently now? I, I think they are. Um, Kathy Mitsui at Goldman Sachs did a very good study of that about a week ago. They've been only once equal weight versus benchmark in about 30 years. And, um, you know, it, it, when you go through a quarter and you're underperforming and there's fundamental change in Japan and you've got a big staff there that you tout to your investors and you miss it, basically everything is a fear of loss and uh, looking bad. <laughs> That's what motivates most managers in all businesses. And um, so they'll, they'll, they'll at least get to wait. And the, the, the Japanese domestic investors have been systematically underweight their market. The GPIF, the largest pool of money, is going to 25% in Japanese equities. That's going to be a big move up. And everyone else has to follow. The official line of the Pension Association of Japan is buy Japanese equities. But, Bob, will we all have to be hedged? Because some analysts are talking 140 on the yen. Today it's 119.70. Uh, and yet we had the situation last quarter where it did move yeah i think you can i mean there are you know if you're buying it via an etf the wisdom tree or and others have um you know fully hedged um, a lot of brokerage firms will lend you the yen to buy your shares so you actually have a neutral currency position it's it's easy to do um, let's move on to bond markets. Bill, I've got you two gentlemen here because they did pretty well in the last quarter. Ten-year Treasury yields fell 10%, uh, falling again to 1.87%. Um, low interest rates have stimulated the markets over the last five years and continue to fall despite the unanimous forecasts of every market analyst. How low can these yields go, Bob? Negative. <laughs> I don't think they'll do that in the U.S., but we've already seen it elsewhere. Mark, why do they keep going down? 
Well, just look at the latest uh, economic data releases coming out of the U.S. It's still pretty patchy. You know, you're seeing uh, GDP falter during the first quarter. You've seen um, consumption not really pick up despite... Um, consumers having a, a benefit from from lower energy costs, um, new car sales um, not really picking up significantly, construction industry uh, negative growth. Uh, the, the, the position of the economy is not strong. But in history, we've been here before, haven't we? And interest rates have been three, four, five percent on a normalised basis. They just seem to be uh, uneconomically low. Well, we're in a unique situation. We're still living through the after effects of the um, the downturn, the big slump that we saw in 2008, um, and we sort of staved off this depression. But the effects is uh, the effect is that uh, economies are working well below capacity. So even though the job market is stronger, with unemployment hovering around five and a half percent, we haven't seen income growth in the U.S. And obviously, the situation is is worse elsewhere. So um, the global economy remains somewhat depressed, and that's expressed as we'll see and hear later in the show. Uh, in terms of commodity prices. Um, Bob, I know you're just about to embark on a, on a tour, but presumably for investment basis, what are you going to be looking for for the next quarter as some of your signals? Um, just, I mean, you know, no signs of goods price inflation. I mean, what drove quantitative tightening in China was, um, you know, a fear of food price inflation for a long time. You know, I don't want to see that tick up. Um, I want to see you know the economy restrained. You know, um, just as our colleague was saying, that that's all that's all good. I mean, we we're actually been switching a little bit out of China and Japan into Europe for the first time last month, and we actually in the last week or two have been buying Russia. Um, we we think there's still more downside for oil prices. So it sounds like a Europe you might be too late, and Russia you might be too early. Yeah. Well, actually, they, they look. Tech, if you look at the charts for the the three top internet stocks and Gazprom, which are some of the ones we bought, they they look like they bottomed and are moving. Good, on. good analysts are always early. Well, thank you very much, Bob. Happy Easter and safe travels. Uh, Marco will be staying with us. And don't forget, if you want to listen again to this or any other stories, you can find all of our podcasts on the RTHK Radio Three website. Okay, it's currently 8.17 and our next guest on the phone from Australia is a specialist on the steel industry, Paul Bartholomew, who's Platt's Managing Editor for Australia. How are you doing today, Paul? Yeah, very well. Uh, Thanks, Richard. Probably better than some of the iron ore producers in this country at the moment. Well, tell us about that. Well, it's just gone under $50 a a tonne overnight. Um, I mean, you'd have to go back probably... You know, back to the old pricing regime, sort of ten, twelve years ago, before you found it any anywhere at those levels. It's certainly been nowhere near that, I guess, since what you know you might call more recent sort of spot pricing that we've been doing since about two thousand and eight. So, uh, as iron ore is Australia's biggest export, so the, the government uh, and not just you know the likes of BHP are not particularly chuffed with the world at the moment. Uh, Mark? Yeah, just um, in terms of production, uh, there's been some uh, commentary suggesting that, I mean, obviously a, a slump in demand, but also massive output from the big mining conglomerates. To what extent has the policy of these big conglomerates contributed to this 30-year low in, uh, in iron ore prices? 
Yeah, it's interesting ones. I mean, there's been a lot of gnashing of teeth and finger pointing in the last um, few weeks, uh, and you know, accusations that BHP and Rio, Rio have sort of flooded the market. But, but you know, re- really, their iron ore expansions have been a sort of long time coming. It's not like they've suddenly pulled out another hundred million tons out of their pocket and su- surprised people. I mean, BHP will say the last time they went to the board to raise any money for their expansion was 2011. Um, I think the big surprise really has been the fact that you know China has has sort of slowed. Uh, I think there was probably too you know there was too much sort of ambition and slightly unrealistic expectations that uh, you know Chinese crude steel production would just keep keep growing and keep growing. But uh, you know as, as the sort of relatively new leadership have sort of come in and tried to slow down the economy, the property sector, which is a you know big consumer of steel, has obviously been flat um, for a long time. Um, all that sort of wave of new iron ore supplies are sort of sort of hit a hit a sort of China where um, steel demand you know may already have peaked. Uh, Bob, uh, going to steel, I was looking at some of your figures that you had in your webcast. Capacity utilization in China among steel manufacturers looks extremely low. You're looking at the 20 to 40 percent mark. That doesn't just look bad. It looks disastrous. Um, yeah, capacity utilization uh, out of, uh, I mean, at the moment, um, in, the, in the sort of Chinese Sort of steel makers, it would, it would probably be around about um, a sort of, I guess, about eight, over eighty percent. If you look, as a whole, if you look at, if you think the total capacity is about just over one billion um, uh, tons a year, and and uh, you know they're producing around about sort of eight, about eight twenty expected to produce this year. I mean, China's really exported its way out of trouble on on the steel side. So they exported ninety four million tons of steel last year, which was up sort of fifty percent. And of course, that's you know really cause a lot of havoc in, in other steel markets around the world. So, um, you know, if for various reasons, whether it's trade barriers, whether it's kind of um, some sort of clamp down on steel capacity or, or other sort of, you know, taxes or rebate removals or anything to sort of curb um, steel exports, and a lot of that has to be absorbed domestically, that's going to put a lot more sort of pressure on, on prices this year. Yeah, Paul, it looks as though steel prices are falling faster than iron ore prices, um, in China at least. Where, where, it does, where, where does this come and, and settle? There's talk that miners can't take prices of iron ore below $40, $40 but there's also talk that it will plateau out at 30 How's your view on that? Yeah, it's tricky. I mean, you know, we, as plants, we don't really do forecasts as such, but, I mean, if you look at, um, you know, the way that, um, you know, the iron ore price producers really been surviving off the weaker Australian dollar uh, and really a massive um, attempt to bring down their sort of production costs, you know, which has probably contributed to, to sort of weaker iron ore prices. But, you know, it's really a case if you look around the world and go, well, you know, who who has their head above water and, you know, with prices at current levels? And you could probably sort of count them on, on one hand, really. So that means a lot of a lot of producers, whether they're in Australia, whether they're in China or, or elsewhere, are, you know, are really going to be having to sort of look and see whether they're going to be able to continue, whether it's sustainable, you know, at, at uh, a current price levels. But I mean, as I've been saying for quite some time, but I think we're sort of very much in unknown territory in terms of price direction because we've just never had such a massive, what we've been calling, you know, sounds a bit melodramatic, but a tsunami of supply, you know, at a time when, you know, China is sort of, you know, finally kind of slowing. So I, th- I think, you know, you look at all the various analyst views out there, and I think at the end of the day, no one's really got a clue. Well, <laughs> you're not just looking at that. Some time going to go lower. You're not just looking at that, Paul. But we've also got a lot of talk that the pollution controls, the environmental controls, that looks as if they are coming in China, could actually impact this industry really pretty substantially. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is this is the sort of dilemma that China faces at the moment. I mean, they obviously want to try and meet their GDP targets of, of 7%. So when it gets to each quarter, if they're, if they're kind of falling below that, they'll probably need to do some sort of stimulus um, without overcooking things again. We saw the, a, a little bit of um, credit easing around the sort of property sector, which, which sort of might help a, a bit. But, um, you know, the Chinese steel officials, you know, the government officials will tell you that... Um, you know, they're absolutely serious about this and they're going to re- reduce a lot of crude steel capacity, particularly in like Hebei province. But at the same time, you know, we probably think there's about 20 million tons a year of new capacity sort of coming on this year. So the, so the net um, sort of decrease will probably be quite, quite negligible. But it's, yeah, so it's, it's sort of what, you know, do they, um, do they go for economic growth, which might sort of keep keep sort of steel going and keep pollution going or do they sort of uh, you know try and slow things right down and, yes and it's, it's that, um, that environmental issue so it's quite a tricky one i think for beijing to negotiate it, it is but it looks as if they're going to have to do well paul bartholomew who's platt's managing editor for uh, australia thank you very much for joining us and we hope to have you on the show again soon it's now You're welcome thanks it's now a eight twenty three. You can tell the passenger carrying an infant that you are tired, too. You can tell the pregnant woman that you didn't see her. You can tell the old man that you'll be old, too, one day. You can tell yourself that maybe the disabled person did not want a seat. Stop making excuses when you see people in need on public transport. Save the priority seats for those who need them. Take care of people in need. Offer priority seats. Well, few people read the South China Morning Post from front to back. Well, at least at first. They go to Harry's cartoon in the middle and then to the back page of the business section to read the Lycee column. Well, Lycee is the area where interesting snippets, gossips and latest trends in local finance appear. And as he steps down from the post to pick up other jobs elsewhere, we thought we'd unveil the man behind Lycee, South China Morning Post senior writer Howard Wynn. Good morning, Howard. Morning, Richard. Well, thanks for coming in this morning. It's, uh, it intrigues me with Lycee, uh, which is quite an institution in Hong Kong. What's it actually like writing it? Well, I mean, every morning you wake up and there's a, there's a, there's a, blank, a blank space in the paper waiting for you to fill. So it's, it's, it, it differs really from um, the, the way other reporters work in, in the sense that, I mean, if they don't have anything to write, they don't write. Whereas no matter how inspired or uninspired I am, I, I have to fill that space. You don't have a flurry of people wanting to, to push their stories on you? It varies from day to day. It's quite surprising. Um, I, th- 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 true, there is a steady trickle of stuff that comes in, but not all of it is, uh, is usable or appropriate. Um, um, and so, you know, sometimes I'm just, I just have to think. How much would you say it's an investigative column? Because uh, uh, several stories you do tend to follow through. I think investigative is a bit is a bit strong. I mean, I, I think that it's uh, yeah. I, I, sh- I shine the light on uh, I, I think um, on some issues which maybe um, aren't getting the attention that they ought to. That's how I feel about it. And uh, uh, sorry, Mark. Oh yeah, I was going to ask a question. Like, what happens to Lycee now? It's a, it is a massive institution in Hong Kong. For those of us that have been around a while. I'm not fully privy to what's going to happen. I mean, I, I believe the name will stay, but I, 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 I mean, 
nobody has been uh, appointed to actually do it, so I, I, I think it will change. Oh, well, that's something for you, Mark. <laughs> Your spare time. Um, Howard, you've been here, uh, I know you first came here in, in 1968, and you've been here off and on uh, probably for around 20-odd years. How's journalism changed in Hong Kong? Big question. Um, the... the um I mean, in many ways, the basics are the same. I mean, you go out, you meet people, you write stories. But um, we now have the internet. We have, uh, and that's changed. You know, it's changed a lot of things. A lot of the way things work. I mean, journalists are now not only have to be able to write; they have to be able to to blog, tweet, all these other things. And um, time, yeah. And of course, you know, overshadowing Hong Kong is this issue of. You know, of self-censorship <clears throat> and some of the issues connected with that. So that's really been a rather an ominous trend. But some may argue, actually, that Hong Kong is one of the freest places in Asia. If you look at many other parts of Asia, the newspapers uh, owned by the government um, and very often has controlled stories there. The, the Post actually still has a pretty free reign. Right, yes. Well, I think Hong Kong's situation differs from, say, places like like Singapore, for example, where, you know, when the government speaks, the, the, the media tends to respond sort of unilaterally across the board. As is very much in, you know, Hong Kong's character, I mean, it's, it's differentiated here. Some, um, some of the media respond to, you know, being told what to do, others don't. And when, say, some parts of the media um, don't cover events they normally cover, then other parts of the media ask the question. So... Yeah, it's not... Uh, it, yes, you're right, it differs. Mark? Yeah, Howard, as you look back over your time as a, as a business journalist, what, what one story that you've covered sticks out a, a, above all others? There have been a lot, actually. But um, I, I guess one of the ones that I <laughs> had the most fun with, really, was the uh, HSBC's union pay fiasco, where um, I, I was getting emails on a daily basis from all over the world of outraged customers fuming at the fact that they couldn't get hold of their money and... You're almost acting like a customer relations desk. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, Okay, well, thanks very much, Howard. We we wish you the very best as you you go on and um, uh, continue writing, and uh, much appreciate that. Uh, Mark, just before we go, uh, the next quarter, are you looking at things being very much the same? Yeah, I think in Asia we've seen, other than Hong Kong and Malaysia, we've pretty much seen central banks take advantage of the easy money conditions globally and uh, start to cut policy rates. So I think we're going to see a continuation of that, not just in China, but elsewhere, and I think that's going to support equity prices, even though, as I've already mentioned, earnings perhaps not being that positive again, particularly coming out of China. Well, I think Mark, momentum's with us. Well, you may be right, Mark, because the markets this morning, Australia, Seoul and Nikkei, are all looking positive, uh, with the Nikkei up about 1% and the other two are up about half a percent. So uh, that's looking good as uh, we go into our holiday. I'm Richard Harris. Thank you for joining us on Money for Nothing today and have a very, very good Easter holiday. And then just before we go, the weather uh, is going to be mainly cloudy with coastal mist in the morning and at night. Rather warm with sunny intervals during the day. The maximum temperature will be around 27 degrees. The outlook's going to be rather warm with sunny periods, fortunately, in the next few days, and coastal mist in the morning and at night. The temperature at the observatory is 24 degrees C and the relative humidity is 87%. And now the news, read by Samantha Butler. 
International talks on Iran's nuclear program will continue for another day. Negotiators say although progress has been made, an outline agreement has yet to be reached. A White House spokesman, Josh Ernest, said the extensions would end if the negotiators stop making progress. I think our approach to these conversations hasn't changed, which is that as long as we are in a position of convening serious talks that are making progress, that we would not arbitrarily or abruptly end them. But if we are in a situation where we sense that the talks have stalled, then yes, the United States uh, and the international community uh, is prepared to walk away. Fighting has intensified in Yemen's second city, Aden, as Houthi rebels try to seize control from local militia fighters. Eyewitnesses in Aden report intense rebel shelling, rebel snipers on rooftops and bodies in the streets. There's increasing concern about the number of casualties as the rebel advance continues, despite more than a week of airstrikes on Houthi forces by a Saudi-led coalition. The BBC's Frank Gardner reports. What we're hearing is that an armoured force together with fighters on foot, have entered Hormaksar. They haven't yet taken full control of the whole of Aden, but Aden is closer now to falling than it's ever been since, since the Houthis began their push right back in September last year. And I think it's pretty hard to see how they can stop that now. If it's confirmed, it means they've really got control of all the major cities in the western half of Yemen, and they've got control of the most important bit of the country. California has introduced emergency water restrictions across the state for the first time in its history to combat four years of drought. The governor-